0: Hey everyone, it's David Wood, and one of the pastors here and one of the pastors at Town Center this week. And if you've been tuning in for the last number of weeks, you know that we've been walking through the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible. And what a book it is. It is fascinating, it is inspiring, it is perplexing. Um, And what I'd like to do is just take a moment to reorient ourselves to what has actually happened so far in the book of Revelation up until uh, today's message. The year is roughly 96 A.D., uh, which is the last year of an emperor whose, emper- this emperor's name is Domitian. Now, if you know your Roman history, you'll know that Domitian was a pretty powerful emperor with a pretty powerful ego to go with his position. Um, his ego was as large as his empire. Now, the ancient world was a very religious world, uh, and there's no shortages of gods in the ancient world. And the Romans were especially good at adapting and adopting and absorbing gods from the surrounding nations. And uh, what Domitian did, though, was kind of unique as as a leader. What What he did was kind of unique. Not only did he absorb, you know, the gods of the nations that they conquered, he also thought, well, while we're adding gods to the barbie, let me add myself as a god. And uh, while you're busy worshipping other gods, why not add me to the list? And that's what he did. He actually made himself into a god. And he demanded the citizens of the Roman Empire to treat him as such. And so, if you were living around 96 AD and you had to go to the Roman Coquitlam Center, uh, in order to go in to buy some clothes or whatever you're having to do at uh, Coquitlam Center, you'd have to take a pinch of incense, burn it, and you'd have to say these words, Kaiser Curious which is Caesar's Lord. Um, Now, if you're a polytheist and you believe in lots of gods, you know, what's another god? You know, that's fine. That's not a big deal. But if you're a Christian, you would have a problem with that because if you're a Christian, there is only one Lord and it ain't Domitian. It's Jesus Christ. And so that was a problem. Now, John, who writes the uh, book of Revelation... This disciple of Jesus Christ, leader of the church. Well, he gets himself in trouble. He gets himself arrested uh, because he can't, he can't follow what, uh, what the Roman Empire is asking them to do. Uh, and we find that he gets exiled to Alcatraz, or actually it's called Patmos, but he's there to languish away on this island. And, and what's staggering to me is that John is left on this island to wither and die. And, and for John, this would have been very difficult times. His, his church, the church was leaderless. Um, and uh, John seems to be without hope. But when we encounter John in the book of Revelation, what do we find him doing? This is really interesting. It says, on the Lord's Day, which, is, which would be been the Sunday, John is, is worshiping. He's worshiping. He's on this island all alone, and he's worshiping. And I'll tell you, that spoke to me this week, um, especially when you know we lament the fact that we can't gather together in person to worship. Here you have John, stuck by himself on this island, and yet he still chooses to worship. And I think that's a challenge for us these days. Even if we're alone, we still choose to worship. And while John is praying and while John is worshipping, what happens? He is given a fresh unveiling of Jesus. It is an apocalypse of Jesus, by Jesus, about Jesus. It's an unveiling. It's a revelation of who Jesus is. And John sees the resurrected Jesus, and and he sees Jesus standing among the lampstands, which represent the church. Which is, again, powerful. Here we think these churches are without leaders. The leaders have all been arrested, have all been either killed or arrested. And, and Jesus is reminding the church that he is still with them. What a blessed preposition, the word with. He is in, among the churches And so Jesus gives seven messages to seven churches. And today we're going to look at his message to the church in Pergamum. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Because what Jesus says to this church in Pergamum, um, I think he also speaks volumes to our church today. So, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword... I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. We pray that you would speak to us, give us ears to hear and eyes to see, a heart to receive, and then grant us the courage to respond to what you teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this is a letter to a church in Pergamum. Now, what do we know about Pergamum? Well, we know it's a city uh, located in northeast of Ephesus. It was a capital city. It was one of the greatest cities in Asia Minor. It had a population around 200,000, so it's a fairly large city. It was a major city with major influence. It had a library um, containing about 2, 200,000 books. Um, in fact, I read this week that the word parchment comes from the word Pergamum. And Pergamum um, was especially committed to emperor worship. Remember when we were talking about Domitian and him wanting to be worshipped? Well, Pergamum was all on board about that. And so how does Jesus reveal himself to the church in Pergamum? Well, it's interesting. Look at verse 12. He says to the angel of the church of Pergamum, write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. And later in verse 16, he says, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. It's kind of an interesting way for Jesus to introduce himself to the church in Pergamum. So why does Jesus reveal himself in this particular way? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. One, I think he's reminding us He's revealing and reminding us where true authority is found. Uh, it's interesting because the the, uh, the symbol of Pergamum, one of the symbols of Pergamum, was a sword. And uh, if you know about swords, I mean, the, 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 the Roman sword was different than other swords of the day. Most swords were just, you know, a single blade. The Roman sword was different. It was it was a double-edged blade. It was two-edged. And um, the Roman sword represented Roman dominance, Roman authority, and Roman power. It was a symbol of the presence and the power of Caesar, of his authority and his claim over all the people, the, the, the claim of life and death over the people. And Pergamum had such a privileged place in the empire that apparently Pergamum was one of the few cities that had the authority to carry out capital punishment punishment by the sword. And we know that uh, this punishment of execution, this capital punishment, was carried out on at least one of the members of the church in Pergamum, because there's reference to a fellow named Antipas. And he is described, it's interesting, he's described uh, by Jesus as my faithful witness, uh, which mirrors actually Jesus' description of himself in in chapter 1, verse 5. It's interesting, the word witness, is uh, is where we get the word martyr. And so when you think about a martyr, someone who dies for their faith, the, the word literally means I bear witness, witness even unto death of the reality and the truth of Jesus. And so in the face of such mighty, overwhelming imagery of the Roman sword and the Roman empire, the double-edged sword of, of Rome, Jesus reminds us again that things are not as they seem. Rome may boast, but it is Jesus who has true power over life and death. It is in Jesus where true authority is found. So Jesus is reminding them, the church, of this. And secondly, Jesus is revealing and reminding the church that there's a battle that's going on. Jesus reminds us that the Christian life is a battle. And boy, there's, that's a metaphor we don't use very often anymore, um, There is a battle to be fought. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the Christian life is a battle. I mean, Paul, in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6, talks about this. He says that that there is a a war going on. There is a battle. It's not a battle of flesh and blood, but it's a battle that is spiritual. Uh, It's a battle against um, lies that threaten to do a number on us. It is a battle of the mind, in fact. And so Jesus reveals himself as the truth that cuts to the heart and exposes the lies that are around him. In Revelation 1.16, we read Jesus says that in Jesus' right hand, he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun, shiny in full strength. In uh, Hebrews 4, verse 12, it says, for the word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than what? Any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Wow. So all of this reminds us that the Christian life is not an easy life. If someone says, hey, become a Christian, everything's going to be great. Hey, uh, don't believe them. There are battles to be fought. And there's battles of the mind and there's battles for the mind. And to be unaware of this and to, uh, and to be unarmed is dangerous. Why? Because what we think, how we think matters. It really does. And one of the reasons why I'm committed to uh, teaching is because thinking matters. Because how you think about things really does shape your life. It shapes decisions you make. Um, there's one fellow who once w- would teach us that, uh, that how, we, how we view cosmology, how we view the, the nature of reality shapes whether or not we believe in God and whether or not we believe in God shapes what we think it means to be a human being and what we think it means to be a human being shapes how we organize ourselves as human beings. And so they're all connected. So if you believe that God does not exist, that this universe that we live in is this nameless, faceless universe, and all you see is, is all you get, there is no God, well, then that's going to affect what it means to be human. To be human maybe simply means you're a, you're, a, you're a clump of cells. You're a bunch of firing neurons. That's all you are. Well, if that's all you are, then that shapes how we treat one another, And uh, if all we are is a bunch of firing neurons, then what place does um, human dignity and value have? They kind of disappear. So how you see the world and how you think about things shapes who you are and how you interact with others. And Jesus reminds us that there's a battle going on for our minds. Now the threat in Pergamum had had there's two threats there was an external threat and an internal threat. so what's the external threat to the church in Pergamum? Well, look at verse 13 he goes, "I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is, and yet you hold fast to my name and you do not deny my faith. <laughs> I know where you live, Jesus says, where Satan has his throne talk about a rough neighborhood <laughs> you know where do you live? I live. 3217 Satan Avenue. Um, I mean, that's the world uh, of the city of Pergamum. I mean, it's why why would Jesus describe Pergamum as where Satan has his throne? I mean, those are strong words. Well, I think lots of reasons, probably a combination of, of all these reasons. One is we know that Pergamum was built upon a very high rock, and it was a center, as I said, of Caesar worship. Um, it was Right back to 29 BC, people in Pergamum, they worshiped Caesar as some kind of god, right? But we also know that behind the city, about a 1,000 feet uh, above it on another hill, and on this hill, there were numerous other temples uh, that were built. And in particular, there was the temple of Asclepius. Asclepius was a god of healing, whose symbol was what? A serpent. And... um, this, this god of healing, Asclepius, was so central to life in Pergamum that uh, one of the leading doctors of the day, a guy named Galen, he uh, made his, his home in, in Pergamum. And just as an aside, it's kind of interesting that if uh, you had people coming from far and wide who were sick and wanted healing, and what they would do is they go to the temple of Asclepius, and what you would do is that you would, you would um, you'd go to sleep on the floor in the temple. And because on the floor throughout the temple, you had all these tame snakes. And so, as you're sleeping, as if you could ever sleep, uh, (laughs) if you fell asleep and one of these snakes kind of slithered over you and touched you, well, that was a sign that you're probably going to be healed. Um, Well, either way, I mean, for the people in Pergamum, um, Asclepius, the goddess Asclepius, was seen as sotir, as savior. Of, of the land. Interesting language. Another temple you'd find is that you'd find a um, temple, a large temple to Zeus, who is considered savior as well. You'd have other pagan temples to Demeter, Dionysus, Athena, and Orpheus. Also, say that there's lots of reasons why Pergamum was given this name the name, the place where Satan dwells. Lots of temples, gods, ideas that capture the imagination of the citizens of Pergamum. There's lots of competing lords deceiving you and drawing away from the lordship of Jesus Christ. But here, here's the thing. Despite the challenges of living in Satan's village, <laughs> Pergamum, Jesus actually commends the church. He says, You know what? You guys have done pretty good. Uh, you've remained true to my name despite these challenges. And so Jesus says, Well done. Um, the church had done well in, in recognizing and resisting the lies that were floating around the city, even to the point of death. And I think, you know, sometimes it's like that. Sometimes it's, it's, um, it's easy to spot lies. I mean, you look around in our world today, and sometimes, uh, you know, you can, you can spot a mile away that somebody's trying to feed you a lie or trying to, trying to pull something over on you. And, and sometimes these lies are easy to spot when compared to um, God's word. But what is more difficult to uh, spot are threats that are internal and that come from within. And in, in many ways, these internal challenges are more difficult to deal with. Um, I, I had a friend of mine who was a pastor at a church in... Uh, in another town, I won't say the town, but, uh, and he was part of a denomination and this denomination had decided to go, uh, quite liberal, especially in the areas of sexuality. But my friend, he, he was a leader of a church. He held strong, but man, did he ever get in a lot of trouble. The media came after him. Uh, people within the church came after him because he was holding to a biblical ethic of sexuality. He got in all sorts of trouble, um, uh, but he, he, he remained strong, um, He was at a meeting in Africa, and he was meeting with a number of bishops, African bishops. And one of the African bishops came up to him and said, Look, uh, I'm really sorry what you've gone through uh, back in, in, in your home. And my friend knew this African bishop, and he knew that this African bishop had family members who were persecuted, and some were even killed by Islamic forces in Africa. And my friend said, What are you talking about? You have gone through so much. I mean, I've just gone through, you know, some challenges, but not not to the degree that you've gone through challenges. And the African bishop said to him, he goes, yeah, he goes, for us, we knew who the enemy was. He goes, you, he goes, the challenge was, is the enemy came from within. And, And that's kind of what's going on here. And there's some internal threats to the mind of the church at Pergamum. What were some of these threats? Well, look at verse 14. In verse 14, he says, but I have a few things against you. You are holding to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immoralities. You also hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. So it seems that the church in Pergamum had succumbed to ways of thinking that ran diametrically against how Jesus teaches us to live. And Jesus sees this and he says, repent. What does repent mean? Well, it means change your mind. That's what it literally means, metanoia. It means change your mind, change your thinking. Which I know on one hand, when, you, when, you, when I say that, you know, change your thinking, it sounds pretty intolerant. But the reality is, is Jesus is quite intolerant. Um, and Jesus is intolerant to any idea, any way of thinking that will enslave us and deceive us. And he hates it when you and I are caught up in the web of lies and we are imprisoned by falsehoods Um, because these falsehoods, these lies, if we don't deal with them, if we don't change our mind, they'll affect our friendships, they'll affect our marriages, they affect our bodies, um, they, they will wreck our lives. And so Jesus is especially uh, intolerant. He's intolerant to, to lies and to falsehoods that do a number on us. But here's the thing. He's especially intolerant to any lie that is being put forward in his name. Okay, that's, that's, that's a real problem. And so there are some, some false truths. <laughs> There's some falsehoods that are infiltrating the church in Pergamum that are being put forward in Jesus' name. And and these falsehoods go under the names of these two teachers, Balaam and Nicolaitan. So what is this all about? What is this teaching all about? Well, there's lots of different interpretations of this. Um, but one thing we can look at is the is is name Balaam, and is a re- reference to a story back in the book of Numbers. Balaam in Hebrew, apparently, has roughly the same meaning as Nicolaitan, and they both mean... Um, conqueror of the people. And so these ideas that are being put forward in some way, in some fashion, are conquering the people of God. And they're doing so from within. So that was makes them so dangerous. So what were these teachings? Well, we're not entirely sure, but they seem to be connected to two things that seem to be disconnected, but actually they, they, they have this uh, deep connection. And one is this, eating meat sacrificed to idols. And secondly, practicing sexual immorality. Okay, so how are those two related? Eating meat, sacrificed to idols, and practicing sexual immorality. Well, they are connected. Practicing sexual immorality, what do we mean by that? It means having sexual intercourse outside the context of marriage between a husband and a wife. So how would these two things be related to each other? Well, again, there's some debate, but it looks like if you were living in Pergamum and you uh, were a tradesman, and uh, you're a mason or something like that, typically, if you were a tradesperson, you would belong to like a trade union or or a guild. That's what they used to be called, like a trade guild. And so, which is not a big deal, except for the fact that you were expected to get together with the other members of the guild regularly. And a number of things would happen when you got together. One, um, you were expected to worship the god, the patron deity that was associated with your guild. So every tradesperson had a god that was associated with that particular trade. And so you were expected to get together uh, with your fellow tradespersons and you were to worship this patron deity. Okay, that's one. Secondly, you were to make an offering to this deity. And what you do is you'd offer meat, uh, you'd sacrifice animals to this deity, and then afterwards there would be a banquet and you would cook up this meat and you would eat together. So there would be meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Thirdly, as you're drinking and as you're eating and hanging out with your buddies, other things were expected. And sometimes uh, temple prostitutes were involved, sometimes plain old Prostitutes were involved. There's lots of sexual immorality that went with it in this kind of ancient boys' club, right? Old boys' club. And so the, pres- the pressing question would be, facing the church, is the same question that faces a lot of business people today. When the boss invites you to unwind at the bar or at the club after after hours, as a disciple of Jesus, do you go? Do you participate in all this? And do you, do you not go knowing that that may cost you your job? And that's a tough one. That is a tough one. Uh, and it's a tough one for Christians then and now. So in light of this, how did the church in Pergamum teach its members to handle these challenges, right? So that was the challenge facing the church. So how did, how did the teachers, some teachers in the church of Pergamum Advise these people on what to do. Well, this is what they would say. Essentially, they would say, Hey, it's fine. Just go for it. Participate. It's not a big deal. And I can understand kind of the thinking. The thinking would sound something like this Well, didn't Jesus come to set us free? I mean, isn't Jesus all about freedom? Um, isn't God all about love and freedom? And so, yes, you sacrifice in a little bit of a pagan sacrifice. Yes, you sleep around a little bit. It's no big deal. One, it's just your body. I mean, your heart still belongs to Jesus, right? And, and I think, again, Jesus wants us to be free. And so living this freedom, does not God want you to be happy? So it's not that big of a deal. So against this teaching that was going on in the church, Jesus gives us this one word. He says, repent. Change your mind. Why? Well, again, Jesus knows that if you start to live in a falsehood, your life becomes false. If you're going to flirt with idols, you're going to be spiritually seduced. It opens you up to all sorts of influences. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 10. It's, it's not just about meat being sacrificed to idols. It's not the meat that's the issue. It's what's associated with it. Um, you're not just eating meat. You're opening yourself up to the cultural values, the political agendas, the lifestyles, the business ethos, all that goes with this act. And if if you're showing ultimate allegiance to anyone other than Jesus, that's a problem. Paul says it's demonic. And it will kill you. And Jesus sees what's going on in Pergamum. He sees how they're losing this internal battle of the mind, and he hates what is happening. And he calls the church, he challenges the church to overcome. Now, what does it mean to overcome? Well, it means not just resisting the external threats that are out there, but it also means to identify false teaching within the church. And how do we overcome? Well, here's the good news. Jesus says, I will come, and I will fight for your lives. And in fighting for our lives, he gives us a couple promises. He says what? Look what he says. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except for the one who receives it. What is Jesus saying? He says, I will give you hidden manna. What does that mean? Well, he points to God's provision for Israel back in the desert, back in the book of Exodus, that's what manna um, is referring to. Um, It's referring to the fact that God will give you everything you need to make it through. God will give you everything that you need to navigate your way through some of the complexities of being a Christian and being, let's say, a business person in the world today. And so let me ask you, where are you feeling overwhelmed in your life right now? Jesus says, wherever you're feeling overwhelmed, I promise you my presence and my strength. And I think a lot of people are struggling right now. Jesus, says, I, I will be, I'm present with you. And he essentially asks you and me, he says, he says, what are you feeding on in, in, in your life these days? In the middle of COVID-19, what are you feeding on? Can you even spot the lies when they show up in the church? Can you spot the lies surrounding your life? Feed on my word, because when you feed on my word, it will transform your mind. It will transform your mind. And if you transform your mind, it'll transform your life. So he says, I'll give you a hidden manna. And then he says this, I'll give you a white stone. Now, what is that all about? There's some mystery surrounding this, but it seems to involve three things. One, it involves freedom. I mean, if you were on trial in Pergamum, and the jury found you guilty, what would happen is you, you would receive a black stone. However, if you were found not guilty, you were given a white stone. And the white stone represents the fact that in Jesus we have been set free. Now, here's the thing. We have been set free, but freedom doesn't mean you can be free, free to do whatever you want. It means you are now set free to do the good to do what is right, to do what will bring life. That's what freedom means. Freedom doesn't mean I can do whatever I want. Freedom means I am now um, released to choose what is good and what is right and what is noble, right? We are free to choose life. Secondly, it means a future. We know that a white stone would often be, you had to use a white stone to gain access to various festivals. It could be that what Jesus is referring to is the white stone is is, is an encouragement to make it to the very end. So you enter into the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we read about in the book of Revelation. So he's saying, don't give up, make it to the end. And then finally, it means friendship. And he talks about us getting a new name. So what is this new name? Do I get a new name? What is my new name? Well, I think what he's referring to is the new name that we get is his name. And we get hints of this in chapter 3, verse 12. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're no longer who we once were, but we are new creations with new identities, and our new identity is intimately tied up with the one who loves us, who saves us, and who set us free. And if we allow the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for us to shape our minds and shape our hearts, our lives will never be the same. And so Jesus is inviting the church in Pergamum. He's inviting the church in Coquitlam to lean in and live out this new identity, to grow into the name Christian. Become the person you already are and embrace the freedom that comes with it. And so I want to encourage you this Christmas. Guard your mind. Guard your mind. It's easy to go down roads that will lead to no good. i A friend of mine said it, put it this way. He says, what is catechizing? What is shaping? What is teaching our minds? And he says, I find that most Christians today are more catechized, more shaped by Netflix than they are by God's word. And I've I hear that challenge in my own life. So this Christmas, allow yourself to be shaped by the word of God. Okay? Well, let's pray. Jesus, we come before you. You are the truth, the life, and the way, and our lives only work insofar as they are connected to you. We pray that you would empower us to live the life that you want us to live. Um, There are many people who are lonely, many people who are struggling this Christmas season. Lord, we pray that we would all know, we would remember that you are present with us, that you will empower us, and that you are in the business of transforming us. And so we pray that you would guard our minds by your Holy Spirit, guard our minds, and allow your truth to shape who we are and how we live. In Jesus' name.